Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for being with us today, for being, Lord, the great God that you are, for being our Heavenly Father, our loving Heavenly Father. And Father, we just thank you for the change that your word may, may make in our lives and our hearts, that today, Father, may be a change for someone, the opportunity today, Lord, to have someone come and be a new, a new creature, Father, of yours, a new creation, someone, Lord, that will leave here changed and not the same as when they came in. Let your word just so work itself into our hearts, Lord, that you receive all the honor and all the glory, for we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, what does the Lord require of you? The title of this message is not the shortest or the longest I have ever seen, but they are seven important words that we should always remember. It's not a real long title. Pastor James sometimes calls it to my attention and says, your titles are too long. <laughs> well, that's what it takes to convey the thought that I've got, and uh, I'm, just, I'm just following what the Lord is telling me, James, but... Uh, sometimes, you know, there might be a, a one-word uh, title, and we're amazed. I'm amazed. That's brevity to the extreme, right? But what does the Lord require of you are seven very important words. They contain everything we say and do and think, and even where we go, where we take this temple of the living God. This temple of the Lord, where we take it, is very important as well. These seven words are what should be engraved in our hearts to always make us remember what God would have us do to show our commitment to him. Micah 6.8, the book of Micah in the Old Testament, gives us this admonition. And I think the message is up there, right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? What shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Shall I do that? Is that how I am to come into the presence of God? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Very important, very important items to consider, and we're going to expand on these three throughout this talk today. But he's saying there, does God really appreciate the killing of all of these animals and the, the rams and then the uh, sacrifice of the olive, all of these barrels of olive? Is that what I should come to the Lord with? And then he asks, what? Does the Lord require of you? Well, Micah was speaking to the nation of Israel. This is what God put in his heart to share with everyone. What should I bring to the Lord? That you do justly, that you love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Throughout the Bible, we find that God has given to us that uh, all that is good in the words of through Jesus, through the prophets, through Paul and John and the other apostles and other personages in the Bible who give us glimpses of God's throne room of grace and mercy as well as, and very importantly, salvation. The Lord has chosen those who have believed and received Jesus to be the recipients of his promises and therefore to be the chosen. I know that the, the Jewish people are his chosen people as a nation, 
But even they need to believe in Jesus, do they not? Even they need to believe in Jesus since he came to earth, took on the flesh, and gave us a new covenant of grace. Was it not to the Jews that he first came? Was it not to the Jews to whom he was speaking when he said in Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were not willing. I wanted to take you in my arms to embrace you and pour out my love and all that I have for you. I wanted to do that, but you were not willing. You see, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you've studied this part of the Bible, you may remember that just a short time before this, we had heard these same words, or he had heard these same words. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When Jesus entered Jerusalem before his crucifixion, Hosanna, Hosanna, the crowds were yelling and screaming out there as he was coming into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were throwing palm branches on the ground so that his donkey would not step on the ground. Cloths, their cloaks, whatever they could, they were throwing them down so that he would have a tapestry, as it were, to walk on into Jerusalem in triumph. Hosanna! The crowds were cheering him as he came in to Jerusalem. And now he's telling him, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When was that going to happen? It already happened, but it's going to happen again when he comes for his bride, when he comes for his people, when he comes really in glory, when he comes with all of his warring angels and the saints that will accompany him. We are going to hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But not everyone is going to be happy, by the way. Not everyone is going to be grateful that he is back. There are going to be those people who rejected Jesus in this life because it's not going to be back in biblical times. It's going to be very soon. And we see the signs already that he's preparing to come back. Come back. Come back. Come back for us. He's, the preparation is already set in motion, and we see the signs in the Bible and in what's going on around us. We see the signs that soon we will hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the new covenant was made with those who have accepted Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior. Even though Jesus came to his people Jesus said, paraphrasing what the Lord said, how often I wanted to take you to myself, but you were not willing. I wanted to take you so much. I wanted to hold you with all my love. I wanted to show you what real love is, but you weren't willing. You turned me away. You rejected me, but that's what I wanted to do. There was a burning desire in my heart to take you to myself, but you rejected me. 
Today, do we see the rejection of Jesus Christ around us? Are we witnessing any of this again today? Do we see people rejecting Jesus? Not only people, we see nations, whole nations turning away from God, ridiculing those that believe in the Lord, laughing, scoffing at the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, ridiculing it. And all he wants is to embrace all peoples because his sacrifice on the cross was not just limited to the Jewish nation. We'll see further on what he said about that. Our Heavenly Father wanted to embrace and love on his people, but as we have already seen in previous scriptures, God had called the Jewish nation a stiff-necked people. That's arrogance. That's pride. He said that about them because they were haughty, rebellious, and arrogant, unwilling to do what the Lord was calling them to do. Our main scripture shows us what God requires of us. That we walk humbly with him. In another instance, the apostle Paul told the Jews that rejected him, See, I have come to you first. I came to you first. But since you have rejected me and the word that I have for you, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to take this so important message to the Gentiles. This is too good to be wasted. This is too good to just be left there to be trampled upon. I am taking this jewel to the Gentiles because God was leading him in that direction anyway to go take it and open the door for the gospel to be disseminated to the Gentiles. Okay, so he came to the Gentiles to teach them the gospel of Christ. But would the same rules apply to the Gentiles that apply to the Jews? If we are to serve the same God that chose the Jews first and then the Gentiles under the new covenant, wouldn't we also have a requirement to walk humbly with the Lord? Because that particular requirement was made first to the Jews. But if it applies to us because we as Gentiles are now received as children of God as well, would we also not have to walk humbly with the Lord as a requirement was made of the Jewish nation? I believe we do. And here is one scripture that tells us this is true. And it's in the book of John, John 14, 21. And it says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He who loves me, my Father's going to love him too. Judas, not Iscariot, sent to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will come to him. But if anyone loves me, my Father will love him too. Now, as fathers and mothers, those of you who have children, you know that if you see someone treating your child in a good, 
in a polite and a kind and a loving manner, you're going to appreciate that person too, aren't you? You're going to like that person. There's going to be an instant click there because he's loving your child. I mean, our children are so special to us. We love them. We want the best for them. And someone else shows the same characteristic. I like that guy. Look at the way he's treating my child. Look at the way he looks at my child with tender love of God. I like that. Well, that's how God looks upon us when we treat Jesus the same way. When we look at God in a loving manner, or Jesus rather, in a loving manner, when we say, Lord, you tell me what you want me to do, not here's my plan, bless it, and let's go with it. You tell me, Lord, what you want me to do. When we do that and say, I'm with you, Lord, whatever you want me to do. My life is dedicated to you. I want to serve you any way that you want me to. Because I'm yours. And I know you have a better plan than I do. When we do that, God sees that and loves us as well. Now we've got, what does he say? We will come and dwell with him. Make our home with him. So now we're walking this whole ball of Christianity, of love, is walking around. It's you, it's Jesus, it's God. All rolled up into one. Do you think other people are going to recognize that person has God in their life? Do you think there's going to be any recognition at all that God is in your life? Will they be able to tell the difference? Will they hear clean speech from you? Are they going to see kindness emanating from you? Will they see mercy and compassion being exercised by you towards someone else? Is that going to give it away? Is that going to tell us he's got something I want He's got something I like. I've got to find out what that is. Because he walks in peace. He walks in rest. He walks in love. He's not worried. It's not that we're not going to have any problems in our lives when we come to Jesus. It's that it's going to be a lot easier to get through them because we do have God in our lives. Because he is going to guide us through those difficult times. Because he is going to be there to erase the negativity that those things of the world had brought to us. They're going to recognize there's something special in that person and I want that. Notice that Jesus was not just addressing himself to the Jews now, but merely stating, if anyone loves me, if anyone, that's where we come in. We're anyone. We are the anyones that can love him, that need to love him. There's a little truism there that I, that I like. It was just so, I don't know what it was. You decide. But it says, nobody is perfect. I am nobody. Therefore, I'm perfect. Well, if anyone knows me, you know I am nowhere near perfection. And thank you, Lord, for that. I'd be impossible to live with if I was perfect. But I'm not. But Jesus is perfect. He always was. He always will be. He is perfect and he was opening the door to salvation by spelling out what he required. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. So that puts it out of the realm of just anyone in the Jewish nation. It's just anyone loves me. 
If anyone kept his commandments, then he and the Father would love that person and would also come and dwell with him. What an offer. What an offer that is. That the God of creation, that the Son of God that came to this world to die on the cross would want to come and dwell with me, with you. Do we deserve that love? Do we do, did we do something in particular? Is it because of our, well, because of your looks? Because in looking around here, uh, hey, I don't know. Of course, if I had a mirror, you know, I'd be saying the same thing about me. But is there something special about us that makes God want to bring salvation to us? Makes God send his son to the cross? Is there something today that we are doing while we're still out in the world that shows God, hey, he deserves it. Look at, look, look what he's doing. He gives so much money to people out there. Of course, he obtained it illegally, but hey, look at, he's giving it too. That's something. He's kind to dogs. Does that get us into heaven? It says here to walk justly, to walk humbly, that that's what God requires of us, that we love mercy, that that's what God requires of us. The Lord reveals his requirements, and then we comply, and both the Father and Jesus come to live in us and change our lives Certainly for the better, right? Isn't it better when God is in us than when he's not? Have we seen anybody like that that doesn't have Jesus? Are they showing a lot of kindness, a lot of mercy, a lot of love? Are they showing that when God is not involved in someone's life? Is there not a lot of pride going on as well? What do we see out there? Not only individuals rejecting God, entire nations are doing it. And yet some still question, what are you talking about God? What are you talking about Jesus? It's well recorded in the Bible that Jesus did this, this, what he did, that Jesus said, what he said, that Jesus went to the cross. But the important thing here, which we must not overlook, is that Jesus said, if, if, tiny little word, and yet a huge significance, if anyone loves me, you take your first step here, love me, show me that you're serious, hey, Guess what? The blessings are going to start pouring in. It's the all-important requirement that, if, that it says we must first do something so that we allow the Lord to act on our behalf. Again, let's note that Jesus did not say, I'm going to bless you and then wait and see if you're going to love me. He didn't say that, did he? He did not say that. In fact, he admonished us and said, don't cast your pearls before swine because they could be trampled, they could be damaged, they could be lost, they could be neglected, they could be destroyed. Don't do that. Be diligent to choose well. Use God's wisdom and understanding to know where you need to go who you need to take this word to. Be diligent. When Jesus sent the 70 disciples out by twos, he said, don't take an extra sandals, uh, uh, an extra tunic with you. Don't take another pair of sandals. Don't take money. Just go in faith. And wherever you are received, stay there. Enjoy the hospitality. Teach them the gospel. 
pray with them, heal their sickness, do whatever you can that brings honor and glory to God and stay there. But it says, but if you are not received well, if you are rejected, wipe the dust off your feet and go on to the next one. They will be judged later. So we weren't sent, they were not sent out with the authority to judge, to punish. They were not sent out with that intent. The intent was go out there and give them the good news because that's who it's for. It's for all those that will open up their hearts to me and receive me. That's why you're going out there. The authority that I give you to heal, the authority that I give you to pray with him, to teach the gospel, that's from me. You use that for good. He's asking us to show him that we are serious about our relationship with God and that in, that in turn brings the blessings to us. If we're serious about serving God, boy, it's limitless. He doesn't set a little bit here. This is for you. This is for you only. No. God gives with his hands full. And how big is God? Hey, he built the universe. He created everything. How much can he give? We can't hold everything that God can give us. So how many times in the Old Testament did we see how God blessed the Israelites as a nation? And then they turned around and started worshiping idols and turning their backs on God's commandments. There are so many stories about folks who have inherited great wealth in today's society, great wealth, or somehow came into a lot of money and their lives were ruined because they were not prepared to be in that position. How many of our athletes and stars and music and actors and whatnot suddenly come into stardom, suddenly come into a wealth of money, tremendous amounts of money, and don't know what to do with it. How many have overdosed because they got involved in stuff that no one had held them back from it? No one had taught them how to properly use what money can represent. Because the Bible says the love of money, not the money itself, the love of money is the base of all sorts of sins. The love of that money. We need money to live with. They did in Jesus' time, we still do today, and we probably always will. But it's the preparation. Are we prepared? Are we ready to go into the world and be able to assimilate that wealth and properly use it and show ourselves to be worthy of what we received? Well, are we worthy of receiving all that God has to pour out upon us? Because he's got more than wealth. He's got salvation ready to give to each one of us. And that tops anything the world can give us. Salvation will put us in the place that money could never buy. Do you agree? Money could never buy salvation. We can't buy a ticket to heaven. But we can receive it freely from the one that has given us all the love that we can hold. From the one that is next to the Father's throne. Wow. But you see, when we love the Lord, the very fact that we are being changed according to God's laws and precepts and not our own weaknesses allows us to walk humbly with God. Walking humbly with God is a choice. It's a choice. It's not forced into us. It is not injected into us. We cannot ingest it. 
We cannot find it and go get it out of a book, get it out of a store or whatever. Choice is given to us by Jesus Christ. What do we do with it? What do we do with that choice? Do we apply it to the knowledge that he gives us and say, wow, this is from God. This is good. I love this. And not only that, when I think about the cross, I love God for what he did for me, not deserving it. He did that freely for me and for you, for each one of us today. He gave us the opportunity to choose salvation, to choose life and not death. When we realize who it is we are serving, there's no choice but to be humbly, but to humbly submit to God's will. There's no choice. You couldn't possibly not see who God is and what he wants to do for each one of us. You couldn't possibly miss it. Even with a bandage on, you can still receive God's love. There are so many ways that the Lord manifests his love for us. So many ways. I love the example of a little, a little baby. You see pictures of a little baby and a smile. I dare you not to smile when you see the picture of a little baby or see one in person. I dare you not to smile. Babies are just, there's something about them that motivates something good in us. Well, that's how God look, looks at us. Look at my baby. Look at my baby. This is my child. What did he say? You must be, you must be as a child, as innocent as a child, in order to Come into the kingdom of heaven. You must not bring all of this garbage and all of this baggage from the world to get into the kingdom of heaven. It won't fit. It won't fit. Only you will be welcome up there. What are we supposed to hear if we made it up there? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the, your master's rest. Well done. Today we call it attaboy. Attaboy. Come on in. Come in here. This is for you. When we realize that the creator of the universe wants to bless us, how can we not be humbled? The creator, the one that made this world, that put the stars in the sky, that set the comets in motion and other celestial bodies he wants to bless me why what did I do well it's not about me it's about his love for me and it's the same for you it's not what you've done for him it's what you've done because of him when we realize that Jesus went to the cross to cleanse us of our sins and it was done just because he loves us so much how can we not be grateful when we realize that everything that God has for us is good and beneficial how could we reject him how could we and yet many do many people reject it that's not from God I've earned everything that I have. It's because I've been diligent, because I work hard, because I studied, because I put my time. That's it. I deserve it because I work for it. That's an arrogance that is not going to be very well received by the Lord. And what does God require of us but to do justly? The word justly encompasses many facets of justice or righteousness. For example, one of the Ten Commandments was to not bear false witness against a neighbor. Don't bear, you will not bear false witness against your neighbor. That was the just thing to do. 
And yet there are several instances where this commandment was blatantly ignored and the opportunity abused. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Do we see that today? No. No. Come on. Just open the paper to the borderland. What's going on there? This guy is being sued for this. These officials are being sued for this. Malfeasance because they absconded with funds from a school district or whatever. They're being sued by the state, by different officials, by the Justice Department. Why? Because they acted unjustly. And God is not going to protect that. God is not going to say, hey, no, no, wait a minute. No, he didn't mean that. Yes, he did mean it because he went through with it. He meant everything. And God's not going to stand there and say, well, nevertheless, leave him alone. He's my kid. No, because we made a choice. We chose not to do what God wanted us to do. In 1 Kings 21, we find one of the most dastardly examples of an unjust occurrence. And we're going to read that now. 1 Kings 21, 1 through 16. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now Ahab, we know, was sort of a pansy. I don't know what else to call him. He was a weak person. And we're going to see just how weak. He was the king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth. Who's Naboth? One of his subjects. Naboth is one of his subjects. And he owns a little vineyard that's next to the king's palace. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than this. I'll give you something better than this. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. I'll pay you for it. Just give it to me. And then Naboth said to Ahab, now remember it again, Ahab is the king of Samaria. He could take that vineyard. He could just confiscate it. He could sign an executive order. Have we heard of those executive orders? Okay. And they continue on today. But the Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. This has been in my family for a long time. My father's bought this. My father's owned this land. I can't give it to you. He's telling the king, no. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased because of the word of Nabob. And he's crying, Nabob the king went sullen and depressed and sorrowful because of the word which Naboth, a Jezreelite, had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. I honor that. He was a lot better than Ahab because he was honoring something. The memory of his parents holding on to that. Holding on to that, that land. And he laid down on his bed and turned away his face. He faced the wall and just cried because they told him no and would eat no food. Can you, can you capture that vision? The king goes in all brokenhearted and lays down and doesn't want to eat and won't be comforted. But... His wife, who? Jezebel. Wow. What have we learned about Jezebel? That's not good. 
His wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? Why are you acting this way? What's the matter with you? Come here, come here, venga pa' camijo. Yeah, you know, come here, tell, tell me what's wrong. He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, you know what he told me? I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. You're in charge. You've got all the authority. You're the king, for goodness sake. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. I will give it to you. Don't you worry about it. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, proclaim a fast. This is the, this is the plan, okay? Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people. Show him to be important so that he won't suspect anything. Show him to be important. Much honor will be assigned to him. And seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. That's my plan. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which he had sent, she had sent to them, rather. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth with high honor among the people, and then in snuck two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Where was, it? Where was the trial? Where was his defense? How could he even say, what? what? Wait a minute. I'm the, I'm the person of honor here today. What happened? And then the stones started falling. And, you know, and he died. Now, who took place in all of this? Ahab. Jezebel. She wrote the letters. She wrote the letters deceitfully because she made believe it was Ahab writing. And then she used his ring to make it good by sealing the letters. But besides those two scoundrels themselves, there were all the elders of the city, the nobles, what? The nobles of the city, and the two scoundrels, they were all in on it. They all proposed to do this evil against Naboth. Is that walking justly with God? And it came, well, then they sent, they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth and the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, he's dead. Now why did those people, by the way, 
answer the letters when Naboth had been killed, why did they send the news to Jezebel? Wasn't it Ahab that was the king? Wasn't it purportedly he that wrote the letters? And it was his signet that sealed him? So why are they notifying Jezebel? Because as I said at the beginning, Ahab was a patsy. And she's the one that ran the show. She had the strength of will. She's the one that determined what we're going to do and what we're not. We saw that when Ahab just turned around when he was told no. He turned around and went home, went to bed, and looked at the wall. But she took command. So that's who was in charge here. But all of them were involved in doing unjustly. Later on, if you want to read that later in, at home, God took notice of that and they received their just reward. And it wasn't a pretty thing. It was not a pretty thing. But Jezebel, his wife, had come to him and took care of the whole thing for him. So it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that Ahab got up and went down and took possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. He went and claimed his new toy that his wife had given to him. Although, although this deed was horrible, we find one even worse in Mark 14, 55 through 99. Neither the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. They couldn't come together and agree. Two of them couldn't come and say, okay, yeah, we agree. We saw, we heard, we, whatever. They couldn't agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, did Jesus say that? No. They took a little bit of the truth, put a new twist on it, and made that deceitful statement be what they were accusing him with. That was the accusation that finally made the priest tear his clothes and accuse him. But it says, but not even then did their testimony agree. They couldn't agree because there were some that had heard the truth when Jesus spoke it. The author of the commandment was ironically the recipient of the breach of this law as witnesses arose to falsely accuse him. That was so evil that it defies comprehension. But then we see what Peter did almost simultaneously that was also false. And we don't want to be too harsh on Peter, but God forgave him later, so I'm okay with him. But let's read what it says in Matthew 26 through uh, 69. Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, Hey, you, were, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, weren't you? I saw you there. But he denied it, denied it before all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. I don't know what you're talking about. Get away. Get away from me. Just denying him was already unjust. And when he had gone out to the gateway, he moved away from her before she would start again with that. He moved to another place. Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, hey guys, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth, him right there. What did he do? But again, he denied now with an oath. Now he's starting to get a little pushy back on them. Hey, what's the matter with you? So and so. I do not know the man. Oh. How does that go against him? 
And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. You speak like a Galilean. There's nobody else here that's looking out for him. Or what are you doing here? You're a Galilean. You are with him, aren't you? Now what did Peter do? Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Jesus told him before any of this happened, you're going to stay with me always. You're going to go through any difficulty I go through. You're going to suffer punishment. You know, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to say you don't know me. You're going to say I never knew him. What was Peter trying to do here? He was trying to make himself look and sound just like them. Were they of clean speech? Were they people that were just? Were they people that spoke lovingly of others? No, not at all. They also cursed and swore. And Peter said, well, maybe this will convince them I'm one of them and leave me alone and not hurt me. So he reduced himself to what they were rather than hold his position as being a child of God. What does the Lord require of us but to do justly? Have we denied Jesus without realizing we have done it? Have we professed to believe in Jesus but have kept it quiet for fear of ridicule by friends and family? Is there any difference between our denial and Peter's? Is there any difference between our denial and the false witnesses against Jesus when we don't admit that we believe in God, that we believe and have received Jesus in our lives? Is there any difference between our rejection and the one of those false witnesses? We've got to think about this, folks. We've got to think about it. Because without admitting that we are Christians, we won't be walking justly. We won't be feeling merciful. We won't be walking humbly with God as he wants us to. If we are going to be okay with telling that little white lie, you know what that little white lie, when it's put up against the word of God, it's huge. It's not a little white guy. It's a lie, period. It defies any description of size because it's a lie. It's unjust. It's not what God has given us. We can't be lying if we have Jesus in us. This is the temple of the living God. This is the temple that holds the spirit that goes back to God when this temple is put back in the ground. Are we going to smear it? Are we going to soil it? Are we going to do things to it that are not acceptable by God because we're afraid? Then where's our faith going to take us? What are we going to do with what God has given us? Are we going to take off the coat of salvation and go back to the world? What does God require of us but to love mercy as well? Do we love mercy? But is it mercy for us from God? Or is it mercy from us to others that need mercy from us? As we read that story of the unforgiving debtor. Is it mercy just from God this way? But it doesn't go the other way also? Do we forgive those who trespass against us? 
Or do we only expect God to forgive our trespasses? Remember the parable of the the man who went away and left his servants with the talents and so many others that are in the Bible that tell us how God feels about us. He, he would constantly say, the kingdom of God is like, and then he would give the parable. But we've got to review one last time what John 14 tells us. If we are to realize what it is we need to do. And he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them. They're two different things, folks. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. As we show our commitment to serve him, he and the Father embrace us in their love, in his love. And that brings the ultimate acceptance of us by the word, by the Lord, as he tells us in verse 23 of John 14. This is the ultimate. This is where we want everything to come to a close. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone, anyone, how many anyones are there here today? All of us are anyones. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wow. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Have you cleaned up that temple so that when they come in to dwell with us, they're not going to be stepping all over our sin and iniquity? Are we going to do that? Because it's there before we receive Jesus. There's all kinds of debris that needs to be removed if we are to show our true love for the living God. And we're going to close now as the uh, worship team comes in, but I want to remind us, this is not an accusation against anyone, okay? So it's not to be considered a bummer. It's an encouragement. It's just asking us, look at these things carefully now, because God's wisdom and understanding are telling us, hey, what I give you, nobody else can give you, but I give it to you freely. Are you going to use it for good? are you going to use it for bad? As Joseph told his brothers, you know what you guys meant selling me to Egypt? You meant it for evil. But God had a plan that he put into motion. God had a plan to use this bad intent for something good so that I today could be in a position to save our family. So you meant it for good, but God meant it for something. I'm sorry, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So let's all come together, he said, and we'll just be a happy, huge family. And that's what God is telling us today. And I don't know what's delaying the worship team, but <laughs> I'll keep on going until they're out here. That's what God is telling us today. Come here, as he indicated to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to hold you as a hand calls her chicks to her for protection and to keep them, to keep them safe. That's what God is telling us today. Come to me. Let me love you. Let me love you. But don't come with all that baggage and all that stuff that's out there. Don't come to me that way. You cleanse yourself through my word. You cleanse yourself through my love. You cleanse yourself through everything I've got ready for you. That hyssop of the word of God that will just tear all of the iniquity and sin from you. 
You use that to come to me because I love you. I love you as no one else can. And now I'm getting worried about the worship team. <laughs> Anybody got a firecracker? No. We need to be aware, folks, and we need to get serious about Jesus Christ. We need to get serious about our relationship with God. Walk in justice. Hey! <laughs> Walk honorably. Walk with all that God has to give you. Because that's what it takes. It takes all of that to bring us into the kingdom of God. It's waiting. Jesus told us that in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you that, so that where I am, there you may be also. So count on it. Expect that miracle because what God promises, he will keep. Amen? God does not lie. God is not into deception. God is into truth and light. Amen. Heavenly Father, amen. Let's stand up, please. Let's stand up.